Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Revelation. We are in chapter 2, having last week just finished uh, the epistle to Ephesus, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And, and again, we remember the, the themes that all of these letters, while they're written to specific churches, what you see at the end is that even though it's written to the angel of the church in Ephesus, at the end of this letter it says, uh, verse 7, chapter 2, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So each one of these seven letters really are for all of the churches and the whole church of all times and all places. We want to remember, too, that these letters flow from the initial vision of the one who is like a son of man, the one who is like a son of man and also then has those characteristics of the ancient of days, particularly the white hair, that is Christ Jesus who reveals to us the Father. Uh, each one of these epistles reflects back on that initial vision. So, for example, when we looked at Ephesus, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks amongst the seven uh, golden lampstands. All of that from the preceding vision. And then if you glance ahead with me to Smyrna, where we're going to go today, uh, then you'll see in verse 8, the words of the first and last who died and came to life. And of course, that's exactly what, um, what the, the Lord says in the opening vision. So they're all referring back, they're all flowing from and referring back to this opening uh, vision, which of course is the vision of Christ. And that's why we say that Revelation is a profoundly Christ-centered book. All, all the different visions, as we'll see even from the throne room, they center on Christ, they flow forth from Christ, they return to Christ. Uh, that's the whole nature of Revelation. So we'll keep that in mind as we go ahead as well. Maybe one final point, and that is to see that uh, while, while the sins are pointed out, there are, very, there are various promises of reward. So seven different sins pointed out throughout these seven different letters and seven, seven different rewards. Now, the whole church on earth needs to, be, needs to hear this word of repentance and needs to confess and, and repent of these, these seven sins. We also need to have our ears open to the promise, the gospel promises, and the, the sevenfold promise given to us in these epistles. So at the end of Ephesus, for example, that letter, the promise is to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And we talked about how that is a both a now and a not yet reality. It's a now reality in the sense that we recognize the cross that tree of death has been made by our Lord into the tree of life. And what hangs from that tree of life are the very body and blood of Christ that he gives to us in the sacrament. We eat and receive forgiveness, and thus our sin is taken away, our death is taken away, we receive life. Or more plainly, the life is in his blood, as the scriptures say. And so... Uh, we recognize that the now aspect of that is the Eucharist, is the sacrament. The not yet aspect really points us to the, the finality and end of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, 1 through 2, where the tree of life is in the midst of the paradise of God in the sense of the new heavens and the new earth and that concrete uh, reality or, um, that 
that reality in which we will all uh, live and move and have our being at that time. So that takes us through Ephesus. Now, just by way of brief introduction into Smyrna, I will read from Brighton. Smyrna is modern Izmir in Turkey on the Aegean Sea. The city at the time of Paul and John had a well-known stadium, a noted library, and a public theater, which was the largest in Asia Minor. Smyrna was also noted for its imperial cult. It was the first city in the ancient world to build a temple in honor of Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome. In AD 26, the city built a temple to Tiberius, emperor from 14 to 37, Livia, and the Roman Senate. The province of Asia was the only province in the Roman Empire to have more than one center of the emperor cult. Several prov uh, provinces had none. Smyrna's strong allegiance to Rome, together with its large Jewish population, made life particularly difficult for Christians. So, obviously at this time in, in history, the church has already been cast out of, uh, has been cast out of Judaism and not afforded many of its legal uh, protections. And so the church finds itself increasingly having two enemies, the enemies of Judaism that rejects it and the Roman Empire that also rejects it. And these two often working in tandem, uh, frequently at the behest of, you know, just as our Lord Jesus was crucified by the Romans at the behest of the Jews, so then his church is often persecuted at behest of the Jews. They say these Christians are troublemakers, they're not of us, they're a cult, and then they slander them with all sorts of nasty things. Um, in fact, some of the, we have extra biblical sources that tell us that some of the nature of this slander. They drown babies, these Christians, otherwise known as baptizing them. They're cannibals, otherwise known as the Lord's Supper, eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ. Uh, they're, uh, they're grossly immoral. They have uh, uh, free sexual course between them, otherwise known as Christ the bridegroom and his church the bride. So you see these very holy doctrines and teachings that were foundational to and remain foundational for what it means to be church, slandered then um, by, by Jews and pagans alike thus resulting in persecution. Okay, so that gives us an introduction then to Smyrna. And let's simply look at verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Of course, a reference to Jesus, the first and the last, as we mentioned when it came up back in chapter 1, verse 17, that this language actually comes out of the prophet Isaiah and has to do with the bridegroom and his bride, the church. I am the first and the last who died and came to life, of course, uh, his death and resurrection. And, you know, in this, he, in this we recall, too, I mean, not only does this language come from chapter 1, verse 18, where he says, I am the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. 
but also goes back even earlier to chapter 1, verse 5, where Jesus is described as the firstborn of the dead. And so we just, we simply want to remember that as we read these words, who died and came to life, he's the firstborn from the dead. And that then includes us in this promise that we too shall rise from the grave. He's the new Adam leading us forth into life. So verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation. This, by the way, is the same word that John used earlier when he talked about um, the tribulation that he endured, which resulted in his being exiled to Patmos. So he says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Apparently, this particular historical church was not wealthy. But look what he says parenthetically. But you are rich. And this is a reference to rich in the things of God, rich in the grace and mercy of Christ. Reminiscent of that theology from St. Paul where, where he who is rich, namely Christ, became poor for our sake so that we might become rich in him. So though materially poor, they are spiritually rich. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, there's a bit of a parting ways amongst commentators on this point. Is this referring to Jews or not? Um, I take it as this is, this is reminiscent of a theology that can be found in both Jesus and St. Paul, that Jew here is being used positively. It's actually being used for a Christian. Those who say that they are of Israel but are not of Israel. Those who say they are of the faith of of Abraham but are not of the faith of Abraham. Those who say they are Christian but are not really Christian but are rather a synagogue of Satan in your midst. What other way would you take that? Well, you you would take that as if this is some kind of reference to a Jewish synagogue locally that's persecuting them, although that just doesn't really seem to fit. Uh, as well, I think, as seeing these as, uh, as well as seeing these as false Christians. So, the slander, the false accusation of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So whether they're biologically Jews or not, which it seems to be they are, and they, they're claiming that, Um, They are not, uh, in fact, Israel. So like Romans 9.4, for example, where Paul says not all of Israel is Israel. And Jesus says something very similar in John chapter uh, 8. If you were were of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. I mean, he's saying that to Jewish people. So it's not simply biology, biological connection that makes, a, that makes a Jew. All right, well, the Lord goes on to say, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. All right, so persecution is coming, and the Lord does not want them to fear what, it, what they are going to suffer. Here he introduces us, so 
Satan makes his first appearance in this book in verse 9. And then the language of the devil is used here in verse 10. And Satan means accuser with usually the connotation of false accusation. It's not always the case, but he's the accuser. He's the blasphemer. He's the slanderer. And the devil is the one who casts out and casts down. So we're going to see that, that sense of uh, diabolos, uh, diabolos, devil, being used to great effect in chapter 12. The one who casts down is himself cast down. The devil is deviled, right, and uh, defeated. All right, so we see Satan and the devil behind all of this. You know, there's, um, there's some other parallels here that are just worth mentioning. We touched on this probably sufficiently last week, but if you look at verse 9, you have those who say they are Jews and are not. Back in the letter to Ephesus, back in chapter 2, you have this kind of parallel, or chapter, verse 2, you have this parallel those who call themselves apostles and are not. So you have those who call themselves apostles and are not, those who call themselves Jews and are not. Um, you also have the Nicolaitans sprinkled in in the letter to Ephesus, and they come up again uh, in the letter to Pergamum. So they're going to be thrown into prison, but only for 10 days. So what's the big deal? Ten days is symbolic. And that's proven by the context. Because, because no one goes to prison and dies after ten days. That you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So we see here then that the number ten is used symbolically. And it's just very important to note this as we go along the way, that Revelation uses numbers symbolically. I mean, even if we want to really press the point, the seven spirits of God as representative of the Holy Spirit, that kind of language is symbolic. He's not literally seven different spirits. He's the Holy Spirit. Right? And so that sevenfold usage is symbolic. It's, it's telling us something about the Holy Spirit. And so too, then, we see that ten here is used symbolically. Here, Brighton says in regard to ten, in the Old Testament, ten, for example, the Ten Commandments, symbolizes the perfection of God in the human context. The number seven symbolizes the perfection of God unto himself. The number ten was used to symbolize events or time periods which would be total and complete. It could also signify an event or period of short duration, not always literally ten and examples to Genesis 24 and Daniel 1 are given. Here, the 10 days indicate a short but intense period of time, a complete period as regards God's timetable. So that helps us understand the apocalyptic genre and the, and the use of numbers right off the bat. When we get to other numbers like 144,000 or um, a thousand, um, in terms of the thousand-year reign of Christ, we want to keep in mind that all throughout Revelation, numbers are being used symbolically.
All right, then the Lord gives his command, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And of course, this, one, this comes from the one who died and came to life himself as chapter 8 states. So you can see how this pertains to all Christians of all times and all places, specifically those in persecution, but in general to all of us. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now, the crown of life is indicative of what we spoke earlier, that by being crowned, we also reign with him. And so here we see what, yet one more bit of symbolism, that he is king of kings and lord of lords. Um, he himself is crowned above all, and yet we also are crowned with him. So we receive the crown of life. And crown has with, with it, too, the connotation of victory. But I don't, I don't know that we need to get into that necessarily. Verse 11, he who has an ear, the same formula used back in verse 7 in Ephesus, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, we reflect briefly that what Jesus says, the Spirit says, and what the Spirit says, Jesus says. They're one and the same. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, the second death, just as we saw um, back in verse 7, where the paradise of God is referred to later in Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, here, the second death, that language is used later in Revelation, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. There's your reference to the second death. And as we'll see in that context, the second death is, is really the final judgment and the casting of the devil and all who worship him um, into the lake of fire. That's the second death. So in other words, what's, be, what's being said here is the one who conquers, the one who is faithful unto death, will not be hurt by the last judgment, will not be touched by Christ's judgment that commands the unbelievers, the evildoers, to go into the second death or the lake of fire. Well, you know, one thing to note here, too, since the whole thing is set off with this title, who died and came to life, that Jesus is the risen one, one thing to keep in mind is the theology of Romans 5. So great is Jesus' resurrection that it wins resurrection for all flesh. That is, the, the first death is completely undone at the resurrection of Jesus. Remember Paul's language and argument? There was, through, through one man, all became sinful and died. So through one man and his act of righteousness, all have been made righteous and have come to life. So you have an expression there of the universal justification of all people on account of, on account of Christ's death. And, of course, it's to be received by faith. If they reject that, they cast themselves out. But that doesn't stop the fact that all men, believers and unbelievers, are raised on the last day precisely because Jesus is risen. So the first death is entirely undone. And you've got no choice in the matter. I mean, you may hate God, you may hate Christ, but you're going to be raised on the last day. So... 
that's, uh, that's where we get that language of the second death. The second death's the only one that hurts, and that, that hurts those who have been raised in their bodies, who hate God, hate Christ, want to go as far away from him as they can, and God finally says, fine, have it your way, and that's the second death. That's the lake of fire. Okay, well, I'll pause and see if any of you have uh, questions or comments regarding Smyrna. You know, as I was studying these once more this morning, just in preparation for today's class, it dawns on me just how multi-layered these things are. and You could really get stuck in them almost forever and just go tangent after tangent. So no doubt I've left something out, if I've, or some things out. If I've left one of your favorite things out, maybe you'd be kind enough to bring that to our attention. All right. Yes, sir. I'm going to have to repeat you, so so you got to make it like easy for me. Can <laughs> <laughs> you just comment a bit on um, just within this letter what, what you see as um, as the being thrown into prison and what it, what it means to be thrown into prison and what it means to conquer. If you had to just sort of put it in words for or what it meant for them or, or what it means for us. Okay. So the question is twofold, and it's a great question. On the one hand, what does it mean in this context to be thrown into prison? And the other question, what does it mean to conquer? Okay. So the first question, what does it mean to be thrown into prison? While it's, while it's tempting to possibly read something more into it, because you have this language of paradise and this language of phylake, uh, prison, um, and, and elsewhere in the scriptures where you have this language, it's referring to the intermediate state. So it's tempting to think along those lines. But I think, I think in this context, what's being spoken of is clearly earthly realities. You have this synagogue of Satan, which is an earthly reality in Smyrna. Um, you have this statement from the Lord, do not fear what you are about to suffer. It doesn't seem like this is anything that's going to be beyond this life. The suffering is going to take place in this life. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. It sounds to me parallel to John himself being exiled to Patmos. So here I understand uh, prison to simply be um, earthly jail. They're going to be Put in the put in the clink. You think um, if you think of Acts, uh, Peter and the apostles found themselves in prison. They're set free by an angel and the earthquake. So imprisonment was a was a, not an uncommon thing that Christians had to face. Uh, Paul, of course, writes some of his epistles from prison. So this is a this is a theme throughout the New Testament for Christians. Um, I suppose what I don't like to reflect on is that we might ourselves end up there sometime soon <laughs> if things keep going the way they're going in this country, you know. Um, whatever's happening in our culture, it's certainly happening in a, in a way that is much less tolerant uh, towards Christians than Christians have been toward others. Let's, let's put it this way, when others have, has, have blasphemed uh, Christ or mocked Christianity or you know, uh, slandered and mocked Christians, what recourse has there been? When have they been thrown into prison? But now it seems increasingly likely, and in fact in some outlying cases is the fact, where Christians who have stood up against 
the religion of this age and the religion of our country, prison is exactly where they're going or the courthouse where they're being sued. So I think even in that you can see like there's, there's these tells that are even bigger than the issue itself. And that's the, that's the behavior of the people who are engaging in the issue. And it's not to say there aren't exceptions and, and wrong things that Christians do. Okay. But by and large, Christianity is not for throwing people who disagree with it into jail. But those who disagree with Christianity do, in fact, want to throw us into jail. Even if that jail at this point in time in, our, in the life of our country is just a social jail, a cancel culture, a deplatforming, uh, you, you can't be part of the public discourse. Uh, but already pastors, um, I, think, I think for certain this is the case in Canada, although it's been a few years since I've looked at this, uh, have been accused of hate speech and have uh, been fined and imprisoned. So, uh, now, as to, the, as to the next question, what does it mean to conquer? And I spent, I spent just a little bit of time on this when we went um, through Ephesus, because that's how Ephesus ends as well. In fact, it seems to be uh, you know, sort of one of these themes and theses that runs through all the, all the epistles. The one who conquers. In this case, I think in, in the language of Smyrna, simply to be faithful unto the point of death. Here, of course, Christ is our model. Christ is the martyr, the faithful one. So we too want to be martyrs after him, that is witnesses. We too want to be faithful ones. And in so doing, we, we conquer. Here, obviously, it's keeping the faith in the midst of suffering, um, imprisonment, testing, tribulation. Over in Ephesus, for example, conquering more takes on the flavor of enduring patiently and bearing up, uh, recovering the love that they've lost. So in one sense, conquering is very simple. It's just universally remaining faithful, but it is flavored and nuanced by the conditions and circumstances of each of these letters. So there's a long-winded answer, but did you have anything to add or anything um, I might have left out? All right. No, no problem at all. No problem at all. Okay. Well, without further ado, we'll go on to Pergamum then. So, from Brighton's commentary on the city of Pergamum, it was situated some fifty miles north of Smyrna. 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. At one time, it was the capital city of the province of Asia. Pliny thought it was the most notice, notable city in the province of Asia. It had a library of some 200,000 volumes, and legends suggest that parchment was invented there when papyrus became in short supply. It was famous for its cultic altars and temples, the foremost of which was the great altar of Zeus. Religion played a dominant role in the life of the city, for it was the center of four of the most important religious cults. <clears throat> Excuse me. Zeus, uh, Athene or Athena, the city's patron goddess, uh, Dionysus, and Asclepios, the god of healing. The shrine of Asclepios, known also as the savior or the serpent god, 
which by the way, there's at least a nod to when you look on the side of a, an ambulance and you've got the staff with the serpent, there's at least a nod to that. <clears throat> so too, of course, to the serpent lifted up on the pole. There's a whole, there's a whole like rabbit trail you can go down here and the, the imagery of uh, serpents in the ancient world and the interface between the Old Testament writings and the pagan writings. It's, it's just fascinating. I'm resisting going down that rabbit hole. Uh, anyway, let's continue on. So, yeah, Asclepios. This attracted many from all corners of the Roman Empire. Charles calls it the lords of uh, the province of Asia. Pergamum was the seat of a famous school of medicine, of great concern to the Christians and always a risk to their safety and spiritual well-being was the fact that the imperial cult was first introduced into the province of Asia, Asia in Pergamum. In 29 BC, a temple was built to the divine Augustus and the goddess of Rome. Subsequently, the city became the center of emperor worship in the province of Asia. So, how much difference is there so far between Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum? Not that much, just in matter of degree. They've all, they've all got the pagan gods. And then the thing, too, to simply pay attention to at this point is they've also got this uh, cultic emperor worship, this, this cult of the emperor, where they're worshiping the emperor as a man who is divine, a man who is God. That's going to play heavily into the themes of uh, Revelation as we move forward. So I simply point that out um, in passing. All right, let's see what's written to the church in Pergamum. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Uh, you remember that. That goes back um, to verse 16 of chapter 1, where in his right hand, uh, the vision of Christ, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. All right, so let's pause there. I know where you dwell, that is, I know your context, basically, um, where Satan's throne is. Now, no one wants to say specifically what Satan's throne is, but we just heard about all the different possibilities for Satan's throne in their midst. Is it specific to the emperor here and that cult? Is it specific to one of the other gods? Um, who knows? But anyway, Satan's throne is, where, is, is in the midst of, of where they dwell. Then he says, yet you hold fast my name. Now, we saw that um, same language. We didn't see it in the language of the, the church, the, the letter of Smyr to Smyrna, but we did see it in Ephesus back in verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And remember how we talked about that, how that's intimately connected with baptism. 
It's not simply the idea of Jesus' reputation or God's reputation. It is the fact that we are baptized. We are those who bear his name. We've been baptized into the triune name. Even in being called Christians, we bear the name Christ. And so when we see that language of of name, we want to think baptismally, and then we want to think what that means. To be a Christian in this place where Satan's throne is, is to bear the name and to hold fast to the name of Jesus. Yet you hold fast my name, he says, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who is killed among you. This is the only reference in the scriptures we have to Antipas. We don't know anything else about him for certain, uh, but he was a martyr here in Pergamum. Uh, that is, he held the faith of Jesus unto death. This was uh, apparently a great, a great threat and a great opportunity, a great temptation uh, to uh, deny the name of Jesus, to deny Christ. Um, thus, the, the language and rhetoric, you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. So here, too, we see what, what it is that Christ wants us to be. He is the faithful one. He wants us to be faithful. He is the witness. He wants us to be witnesses. So Antipas is described with exactly this language. And, this, and then, out of curiosity, here, too, there's, there's ambiguity in the Greek. You did not deny my faith. That, that could be translated easily in the way we usually think of it is, um, you did not deny... Um, faith in me, your faith in me, okay? The language is ambiguous and could also be understood in this way. You made the same confession I made. You are making the same confession I, I made. Um, and, and how that language works and actually might even fit the context here better is remember, Jesus is the one who is faithful unto death. Jesus is the one who confesses, you know, like... in the wilderness where Satan attacks him, throughout his ministry where Satan attacks him, in the garden where Satan attacks him, on the cross where Satan attacks him. Um, Here in Pergamum, they're working where Satan's throne is, where Christ was working. Satan was everywhere present and attacking him. The faith that he held, the faith that Jesus held, is the faith that his father would in fact raise him from the dead. And so, what does it mean then to hold the faith of Jesus? It means to hold the belief that just as the Father raised Jesus from the dead, so the Father will raise us from the dead. All right, so both are possibilities. You don't have to decide which you like. I kind of like both. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And Brighton just doesn't have much, much light to shed in terms of this language of uh, Satan or where Satan dwells. He simply says, the throne of Satan indicates the source of the sufferings that the church of Pergamum was undergoing. The suffering may have been ridicule and hostility from a pagan society dominated by pagan rituals and emperor worship, or it may have been persecution resulting from their steadfastness in their faith, etc. 
But here's really the take-home point that we saw in the letter to Smyrna and we see again here at Pergamum. Are these folks who live in these cities, are they actually seeing a building with a great big sign on it that says the synagogue of Satan? No. Are they really seeing this giant seat in the middle of the town square at Pergamum that, that says underneath it, the throne of Satan? No. Okay, so what, what actually then is being taught here? What actually is our Lord doing for these Christians and thus for us? He's giving them eyes to see. He's giving them a way of interpreting, right? With their eyes, they, they just see a pagan temple. It probably even looks beautiful. Maybe was, some of these are marvels of engineering and architecture and, and, and gorgeous and awe-inspiring. Uh, and the Lord calls it what it is, though, a synagogue of Satan, a seat of, or throne of Satan. So that, that teaches us, the Lord gives us eyes to exegete, eyes to see and, and understand and read the culture around us so that we're not duped the way so many people in our culture are duped. Oh, that looks good. That sounds right. That looks fun. You know, those are the kinds of things that we would say. And, and to that, the Lord would say, no, look again. That's the domain and rule of Satan in your midst. That's leading people astray. It's distracting people from the truth, distracting people from Christ. Uh, etc. So, simply then in passing, we don't want to uh, miss the fact that behind the everyday reality of first century uh, Asia are these dark, uh, powerful spiritual forces. And it's no different for us today. Drive up and down the freeway and you look at all the things you look at and you don't see anything that says synagogue of Satan. Well, maybe you do. But uh, there'd only be like one and it'd be small and nobody's paying attention. Uh, the real, I mean, the real dangers to our culture are the things that are being championed as good and wholesome and pleasurable and desirable. Those are the things we ought to take a second look at as Christians and be very careful in regard to. So we're surrounded in false religions, no doubt about it. Um, we're surrounded by... Uh, the, the religion of materialism, the religion of stuff, the religion of reputation, the religion of um, having, having as good a life or better of a life than everybody else around you, which, you know, good and better usually mean, uh, again, material goods and experiences, that kind of thing. These are the, these are the religions around us, the religions of, of our locale. Uh, government is frequently a religion, but we'll get to dwell on that theme later as we go into Revelation. Even, even here in Orange County, there's sort of this expectation that if there's a problem, government will fix it. Yes, I see a hand in the back. They have what? They have these two steps going up. Oh, I see. I see. It's breathtaking. It's white, like white marble. Mm. Yeah. It's beautiful. Right, right. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, and that, you know, that was the case. Again, it's a little apples and oranges. Part of what, 
I think part of what the challenge and task are is that we are called to interpret those things around us. Um, that's the challenge and the task. We look at, we look at previous centuries and it's, it's easier to see where their idolatry was. It's not always so easy to see where ours is. We have to think about that. One of the helpful things that, and I forget who, but a scholar of Islam said is that if you look at the, if you look at the 9-11 bombings and the targets they picked, that's actually a pretty good indicator of the gods we worship because that's how they're viewing it. life is if we topple their gods, we've toppled them. And so they hit the trade towers that money's our god. They hit the Pentagon or attempted to, or I guess they got part of it, didn't they? Um, military might. And they were going to go for the White House, I think. Gov so government, that kind of thing. So military, government, money, Pretty, pretty indicative of, of where, pretty good read on our culture, probably. Yes? Considering shopping malls as, as um, the churches of our age, yeah, although lots of people are doing online worship these days, <laughs> clicking on Amazon, <laughs> it's really easy. Nice to get that little shot of dopamine or whatever it is when you click and... Okay, well, um, so the, yeah, just, just to get back to the point, the point is we want to interpret what's going around, on around us, and we want to interpret it theologically. Okay, so what is he doing in this letter? He is saying he's quite intimately aware of, of where they dwell and the challenges, and he commends them for not denying the faith, even though there's been a, a martyrdom there. And then verse 14, he switches gears and says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Okay, so again, this seems to be an indication of this going on, I mean, certainly in the city, but, but more like in the congregation. Because this is against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block. This is, um, Balak was the king of Moab. Um, your references here are Numbers 25 and Numbers 31. And if you remember, Balaam's kind of a, a greasy character. He's kind of a prophet for hire. And that, so that's, that's certainly what's like a major part of the flavor is like wanting to worship God and mammon, wanting to profit um, for profit's sake, from, from theology. That, there's some of that flavor here, to be sure. But ultimately, our Lord is quite clear what the, what the predominant flavoring is. The sons of the, um, the original temptation that Balaam gives to Balak is, hey, have the, have the people intermarry. And then in intermarrying, Israel will begin to worship the, the idols. And so Balaam, what Balaam does here is tries to, tries to trick and deceive. Um, so to the result, uh, to the result that um, some are eating food sacrificed to idols and, and practice sexual immorality. So how's this going on in the, how's this going on in the church? It quite, it quite easily might be inter, like, 
where Paul forbids Christians to marry pagans. Here, the, ba- the Balaamites might be teaching Christians it's fine to marry non-Christians. And then, lo and behold, when the wife needs to go to pagan worship, I guess you better go with her because, you know, that's what a good husband or a good wife would do, you know, go with your spouse to the pagan temple. So there seems to be this deceit wherein Christians are being led to eat food sacrificed to idols, which, of course, is a, is a violation, really, of the, of the communion. I mean, very simply, you're eating at the table of the Lord. You can't go and eat at the table of demons, right? And then that leads ultimately to uh, the practice of sexual immorality. The, the temple cult is all based in sexual immorality, fertility rights, and whatnot, um, which, of course, must have, been, must have been quite the attraction to pagans because you have your religion and your, your fun. You, know, you have your cake and you eat it too. It's all one and the same thing. Um, and Christianity, of course, stands against that and always has. Now, this sexual immorality... Um, is going to tie in in the letter of Thyatira with the woman Jezebel. So going forward, it ties into sexual immorality uh, and, and this idea of um, eating food sacrificed to idols. And it also, it also goes backward to the Nicolaitans. And in fact, the Nicolaitans are going to be mentioned here again in this context. So the Nicolaitans came up in Ephesus, and we don't know much about them, but what we do know is they're, they're described as being an antinomian sect that's basically, you know, pleasure-based. Just, hey, your flesh is your flesh. Indulge it. That's not who you are, you know, that kind of thing. So what I'm trying to show then is that maybe on the surface all of these different temptations and these different characters, whether it's, the, whether it's the false apostles or whether it's the Nicolaitans or whether it's the, um, those who say they're Jews and are not or whether it's those who are um, doing the teachings of Balaam or, or later Jezebel, there are, very, there are common threads that run through all of these things. And the common thread that runs through all of these things is basically conversion to paganism or persecution by paganism. So I I think it helps us to not get too hung up on the details as if these were all specific, unique things. There's quite a bit of overlap just between the teaching of Balaam, the Nicolaitans, and Jezebel, for example. There's obvious overlap. There's, I mean, they're virtually identical. All right, verse 15. Let's see if we can uh, march along here. Verse 15, so also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now that's, of course, a reference back to verse 12, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And he is going to war against those um, who apparently are in the midst of the congregation the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans in specific. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, that no one knows except the one who receives it. 
So just as with the other promises, these promises too are given to all Christians. Um, the one who conquers in this case is the one who repents and not only purges his own heart of the Balaamite and Nicolaitan heresies, but then the one who calls his brothers and sisters in Christ to repent of these heresies and return to the purity of Christ. That's really the one who conquers, the one who's allied with Christ against these two. And to the one who conquers, then you have this, this uh, promise of the hidden manna and the white stone. Now, just like all the other promises we've seen, there's a now reality and a not yet reality. And, of course, the, the hidden manna and the white stone, are, I mean, ultimately this is pointing to what we will receive in the new heavens and the new earth. <clears throat> and in this respect, I think the simple answer is that both of these are references to Jesus. Via John 6, for example, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and died. I am the true bread that comes down from heaven. Um, so Jesus, in that sense, is the manna. And then the white stone is particularly difficult to interpret. And after combing through uh, the commentaries I have on hand, which I, are probably the best, if not among the best, available to us in English, as well as combing through some of the statements on the church fathers on this, I found just about nothing worth, <laughs> worth anything. Nobody, nobody's exactly sure what this is a reference to. If you remember when we looked at Zechariah chapter 3, there was this reference to the stone with uh, seven eyes on it. You remember that? So again, I think in the broadest sense, just as you can tie the manna to Jesus, you can tie this stone to Jesus, if you like. And what this will be exactly, we'll certainly know in the new heavens and the new earth. That would be all the forward-looking. In what sense do we have these things in the now? And, of course, the hidden manna is clearly a Eucharistic Lord's Supper. As Jesus teaches in John 6, he is the bread of life that comes down from heaven. The, the, the bread that he gives for the life of the world is his flesh. Whoever eats his flesh and drinks his blood has life in him, and he, Jesus, will raise them on the last day. Now, what about this white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Um, Brighton sees baptismal references here, and I think he's right to do so. He says it this way, the promises are phrased in language that recalls baptism. Uh, for example, the new name. Um, that's God's name being written upon you. You know, from, in certain times and certain places, people have been given Christian names. And so it could be a reference to that. Later on, this is turned into receiving a baptismal name from you know, one of the saints in baptism. Um, but I don't think that there's much evidence that that's going on at this early stage. But as, as Brighton says, uh, this is language that recalls baptism. Let me see if I've got anything else from him specific to the white stone. Hmm. If it wasn't Brighton, I just want to give him credit if it is in fact him. Otherwise, I'll tell you a little bit more about maybe the, maybe the most likely of what this white stone is. Yes, here it is. Got it. Um, Brighton writes, this possibly 
refers to the custom of judges casting a white stone into an urn to signify the verdict of innocence. It could also denote a Thracian custom of marking every good day by a white stone. Neither of that's particularly convincing. Um, but what would that mean? That Jesus is giving us a white stone with, would be that Jesus is declare, declaring and marking us innocent. Right? And that certainly, of course, nothing wrong with that. Um, the new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Like that, like, does that mean that Jesus gives you a top secret name? That's one reading. The other reading is that it's the name of Jesus himself and only those who receive it know it. Sort of, sort of indicative of the baptismal uh, mystery that only, only in being baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit do you begin to understand that, and that name. So, again, after, after my research, and, and I think this is my third time going through Revelation, and every time I get to this verse, I'm not sure I have anything better to say. We've got a hand up here, so maybe we've got some insight. Mm. Cases, which seems to at least fit here with um, being, you know, or having access to this hidden man or something and sort of entering that kind of vacant setting. So, mm. okay. I'd have to look up my. Yeah, so I'll just repeat the, I'll repeat the suggestion. The suggestion is you have in the hidden manna, you have um, like banquet imagery. And then in the ancient world, it is perhaps the case that uh, your ticket in the door. Um, they didn't exactly, you know, you couldn't get these little tickets print on demand. You couldn't go to Staples and get tickets printed up. So your ticket in the door was uh, a stone in some cases. So this would then be the white stone, effectively your, your ticket into the banquet, uh, wherein you receive the, the hidden manna. So an interesting suggestion. Thank you. And as an aside, let me know if you find the source. I'd be, I'll, I'll write it into my notes. So when I do this the fourth time, I can add that to the, yes. Right. Uh, very unique and very special in that promise. Yeah, yeah. So, so looking, viewing the intimacy, this was the comment. I'm just trying to bring the comment back up as, as efficiently as I can for those online. Um, that, that regardless of the exact meaning, there's an intimacy involved here. Um, that the Lord is, is giving you this white stone with a, uh, with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Yeah. I, I mean, I've often thought that that's kind of interesting. Like, I mean, this is, this is a little far afield, but what if you had a terrible name? I mean, what if your, what if your pagan parents named you some terrible pagan name? There's also, well, now I'm going to launch off into my name theory, which I don't have time to do. There's something interesting about names. Adam, um, before Eve was, God brought all the animals before Adam, and he had to name each one. And there's something, about, there's something about that in that he comes to know their essence and name them according to their essence, and in so doing, he comes to know his essence. Well, the tangent is that if we receive uh, new names, so to speak, from God, they would be names expressive of our essence. In, in many ways, our, our parents have no clue. And sometimes by, by what our parents, I mean, this was certainly the case in the Old Testament, for example, the parents would name their children 
in accordance for either what's going on or what their hopes and dreams were or that kind of thing. I mean, sometimes it's really rather negative, uh, the, the names given. Um, but the names always have, always have meaning and purpose. Uh, and of course, that's been lost on us. So an interesting speculation uh, would be to consider if it is um, our Lord Jesus himself who gives us names that actually, in fact, represent who we are. Um, as such, in his eyes, objectively, as opposed to our parents or this fallen world. So I'll simply add that in as one more ingredient in the conjecture cake here on the white stone. Yes? Yes, right. There's certainly, yeah, I mean, you could do an entire study on stones in Scripture and I'm sure come up with all kinds of ways in which this, um, this also might work, but maybe we'll have to just leave that uh, for another time. <laughs> okay, yes, last comment, and then I've... Can we relate the, the name with the name that the Lord put on the, on the Book of Life? Right. Okay, so the question is, can you relate this to God writing our names in the book of life, which is in Christ? And, and the answer is maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it, that probably has as much validity as my guess about the God renaming us. <laughs> so I, it's, quite, it's possible. Um, but who knows? Who knows? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all, and thank you all for your pa patience on this challenging verse. Next week, we'll jump into Thyatira. And, uh, you know, we'll keep trying to move along at this clip, so I anticipate next week possibly getting through the letters, um, or at least up to Laodicea. The Lord be with you.